If you look at a syndication, the only difference between a joint venture and a syndication is the limited partners, right? The limited partners bring the vast majority of the money, but the general partnership and the JV is the exact same thing. And so the difficulty in being in a joint venture is the same as it is with being a general partner. You have to be in that group and you're signing a loan together. And so there's not a whole lot of people you'll sign a loan with, right? As an operator, I know other investors are romanticizing multifamily investing, and I'm looking to learn from other investors' mistakes. I know you are too, and you found the right place. Welcome to Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Multifamily Missteps. I'm your host, Jerome, and we are doing another multifamily kickstart session. And I don't ever say her name properly because I'm not that good. I have Miss Ray with me today. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's apparently giving us a break here, the weather in Houston. So that's a good thing. It's been raining pretty heavily all week. Down in Houston. Didn't somebody talk about floods or something in Houston not too long ago? Is that a thing? Yes, the thing is what we're known for. One of our less attractive qualities, I would say, is the city. But that's not always the case. I think the news withholds information at times and it essentially causes hysteria as well. I think that's that's an elegant way of putting it. So I'm going to try. Shalmet? Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's it. And it's funny because it depends on who you talk to. I got it. I got it. Uh, it, well, in the in the United States, but if you talk to somebody that's from Europe, they have corrected me. They are like, "No, it's Shaman." So, <laughs> ooh, you need an accent over the e. <laughs> yeah, they they literally have corrected me, and I'm like, "Wow, my mama, if she was kind of my she name." Wouldn't appreciate this, but uh, it's okay because she's no longer here, so I won't tell her. But yeah, you pronounced it correctly. Beautiful. That makes me feel happy. Okay, so you are a broker. You've been moving around in the space. You've done some other things. Tell the listeners a little bit about your journey. So I am based out in Houston, Texas, as we previously discussed. I'm a scientist by trade. So I started, you know, out with the thought when I went to school and when graduated, I wanted to get into essentially uh, research. Bench research is what some people would even call it. And I started out at Baylor College of Medicine at slash Texas Children's Hospital in the Texas Medical Center. And that was after having spent like a year in a laboratory that made peptides and some of the other uh, chemical like components and proteins and things like that, in which labs in the medical center typically use for research to perform various types of analysis and just a plethora of things. So during that time, I had a short stint in grad school. I thought I wanted to study cardiovascular sciences. And I discovered, unfortunately, I was very unhappy. And then I was really nervous about how I was going to make a transition without, I was concerned about saving face and my face and I don't know, other people's faces that I thought might be impacted by it. And it was, you know, kind of like a dark time, but, you know, something that had to happen. It, it you know, forms who you are when you go through experiences and you learn and you work through it as opposed to just, I don't know, collapsing and just saying, you know, forget it. I'm not even going to try. So from something like, um, I forgot, oh, like 2002, all the way until 2013, I believe it was. 
I was in the essentially bench research space. And I have a couple of publications. Well, I have a number of them actually uh, under my previous name, my maiden name. And um, after I left grad school and then I was laid off from my job in the medical center, I decided to pursue real estate full time. And that's kind of in quotes because I would hear a lot of people say things like, you know, you're not going to be taken seriously if you're not in it full time. And and then, but I would hear these same people say, but you know, I was at the strip club last night and I, I made like thousand dollars. So, you know, they were like moonlighting too, but they were just, you know, wrapping around a pole, at, you know, at different times. So it's just, you know, whatever. <laughs> and um, so I, uh, I was late after I was laid off, I just went ahead and pursued it full time because I talked to my husband and we just decided, we'll just, you know, go for it, grab it by the horn, so to speak. So 2007, I became licensed. And then 20, I think it was 2014 when I actually left the lab the day after Super Bowl. Then I had already made a change and went with uh, Keller Williams and started focusing on commercial. Speed that up. I always wondered how people were buying buildings and what they were doing and how they were doing it. As I would, you know, you just ride into the grocery store doing whatever you're doing. And then in 20, I think it's 2016, I became aware more or less of the Brad Sumrock group. A lot of them live in the Houston area and in Dallas. And I was like, wow, you know, they were get, doing meetups and, and different things like that networking. So I said, I'm going to go if I can go and just hang out with these folks. And so I would just go and sit inside because they would do it like in libraries and public places where it was easy to access. But then I didn't understand how people were coming together with regard to the money. I was like, are they taking all their savings? Are they mean at Starbucks and writing on, you know, the receipt? You know, I'm good for 25. You know, I'm good for 10. What, what are they doing? Because I didn't understand it either. Like, it seems very unofficial. Then as I began, began to keep going to the meetings, I learned they were doing syndications. Then 2019, I just made up in my mind, this is going to be, be the year I'm going to do something. I'm, I'm just going to get in because if I keep doing all this research, I'll just never, you know, actually jump in and I won't know everything. But if I can at least have a really good working knowledge of what's going on and not invest all my eggs, I think I'll be okay. And so I did that in 2019. I bought a, I always wanted to buy a home in cash flow. So I said, okay, I'm going to do that. So I did that working with a group called SDIRA Wealth in the uh, Illinois area. And then in the fourth quarter, essentially, of 2019, I became an LP in a deal with some students, you know, some of the same people that I met at the various networking events and got to know pretty well. I became an LP in a deal that's in one of the Houston suburbs or submarkets as well. And along the way, it's been a journey of just learning, you know, how things work, you know, kind of what you can say. When I say what you can say is, I guess how much of it you can say it, it will be actually heard. So it's been a really great ride. Hadn't been comfortable, but it's been a great ride. And I'm just excited about what will happen in the future as far as what I envision. I guess what I've been shown in my spirit about, you know, some things, glimpses of some things that are in store. And I'm looking forward to continuing to build my portfolio as small as it might be right now. There is nothing small about that portfolio. You just started. so. How can I help? Give me give me some challenging questions. I know you got them all. I didn't know the whole research thing. I, I feel like I'm about to get the whole scientific method put on me right now. So no, I'm, no, I'm no. nervous. I'm shaking, but it's <laughs> it's okay. I'm I'm here for it. Let's do some. 
So one of the things that I know you've, I've heard you mention about this on various platforms, but I always wonder, just your opinion, are syndications believed to be the more uh, popular choice when affording a plethora of ways to participate in an opportunity as opposed to JV opportunities? Is it more popular? Absolutely. Syndications are the wave. (laughs) But is it more popular because there are just more ways to actually participate? Because I know JV opportunities generally involve everyone being more active. And then with that, don't you usually have an opportunity to make more money? And with that, would that also mean there are just less people that are needed or necessary in a deal in order for all those factors to come together? Yeah, definitely less people in the deal. Opportunity to make more money depends, right? There are some people who are active operators and they make a lot of money for their syndication fees. They make a lot of money from the splits because maybe they're able to negotiate 65-35 instead of 80-20 or 90-10 or whatever they decide to hold back. And so, you know, the money piece is deal by deal. And it's always going to be deal by deal, depending on how juicy it is and how much the person is willing to sell the deal for versus what you think it will trade for an open market. I one of the reasons why syndication is so popular is because of the opportunity for people to just put money in the deal and wait for the check to come back. It's had to be popular so that people can aggregate it. I was talking to somebody a couple of days ago and they were like, yeah, on our first deal, we raised money from 17 people, but we had a list of 170 people who said they were interested in participating in the deal. And I mean, that's about right. On your first few deals, you know, 10% participation rate is probably what you should expect, if not lower. So you've got to make it popular in order to get people to participate, because if you don't, then you won't have that list to get to your 10 percent. Do you think also that and it sounds like JV opportunities are more difficult to get into as well? right? Well, agree? so I, I <laughs> there was one time where I had a typo and I thought it was funny. I was like joint ventures versus JVs. Right. And if you look at a syndication, the only difference between a joint venture and a syndication is the limited partners. Right. The limited partners bring the vast majority of the money. But the general partnership and the JV is the exact same thing. And so the difficulty in being in a joint venture is the same as it is with being a general partner. You have to be in that group and you're signing a loan together. And so there's not a whole lot of people you'll sign a loan with, right? Mm-hmm. Not a whole lot different than buying, co-signing a car, right. right? Especially if it's a recourse loan. And yeah, sure, it's an asset. It's supposed to go up in value. It's not something that somebody's going to use. And every time they start it up, the value goes down. But in concept, you're tying your financial future together and you're just not going to do that with any and everybody. And so the level of relationship that it takes in order to get that opportunity, I think, is at a higher standard than, hey, just send me $25,000 or send me 50. And with that said, I like to joke that, you know, for a lot of people, they care more about their money than they care about their body. Like if you think about relationships, like a whole lot of intimate relationships go to very different levels before they actually start talking about their financial situation. They don't know credit scores. They don't know how much money's in the 401k or IRA. They don't know about assets. They don't know about any of that, but they're exploring bodies. And so to think that somebody's just going to give you money, 
like if you want to be a lead general partner, mm -hmm. just understand the hurdle that you're trying to overcome, right? This is one of the top two most precious things that people have more often than not. And for most people, it's number one. And so I think there's been a lot of romanticizing of, oh, well, yeah, people will just give you money. So anybody can do a syndication and, you know, give me 30 grand and uh, you'll get your acquisition fee and I'll get it all back. And I think a lot of people are finding out that that isn't actually true. And so what I encourage people to do is more so go to joint venture route, do it with a small group of people that, you know, get the experience show people that you know how to make money by operating a business and then go ask people for money because you can point to your track record of success versus mm -hmm. the whole game that I think a lot of folks are playing where it's, well, learn why you earn, put your 25 in, we're going to lock it up for three to five years. And that's 25 that you can't put on the next deal, 25 you can't put in education or 25 that you, whatever it is, right? To pursue the deal that maybe you don't want to buy because you find out in due diligence, there's something wrong and you pay for the inspection and you pay for the appraisal. And so, you know, that money's gone. So I guess to put a bow on that, you know, people are in this space and they're lured into syndication because it's the path of least resistance. Oh, I want to be an investor. Okay. Well, just put 25,000 in my deal and you can say you got however many doors because that's what everybody's measuring by. Right. I got mm -hmm. 6,000 doors. And of that, I own 0.01%. Well, it sounds good from a marketing standpoint, but is it actually doing anything for your net worth? And is it doing anything for your income that you don't have to work for? And if it's not, then let's stop with the vanity metrics and really get the brass tax on your ability to be a hundred percenter, right? Your, your bills are paid by income that you don't go to work for, or you're making an equity play. And this is why I really like joint ventures where you're putting your money in. You're not so much worried about the cash flow because you're trying to expand your equity by, you know, forcing appreciation on the deal. And I think if you force the appreciation enough, you harvest enough equity, then you can roll that back into a bigger deal. That's going to actually give you the cash flow that you're truly seeking. And we don't have that conversation a lot, but I can tell you that the majority of those decisions are made in the general partnership. In fact, all of those decisions are made in a general partnership in the syndication, and you don't actually have experience by being an LP, right? What are you going to get? A report and a distribution as an LP? Like that's what you get. You're not involved in any of the decisions. Right. You don't have any real input on the modeling. Right. You're not testing assumptions. You know, people are giving you the thing and saying, hey, do you want to put your money in and get this eight pref and whatever we project the IRR to be at the end? Right. I don't know that that's actually teaching you how to be a business operator. And I think that's the core, truly the essence of what we're doing here. We're buying and selling businesses and we're when we own them, we're trying to figure out how to make them more efficient so that they generate more money. Right. And that more money raises the valuation which allows you to harvest that equity to grow your net worth and then potentially create additional cash flow off that network. Gotcha. That was a very, very thoughtful answer. Thank you. Next one. Real estate funds, I am learning, are an interesting way to enter into real estate investing. Do you think investors new to the game should consider this avenue? I think it's dependent based on their situation and their desired outcome. If you are a first-generation wealth builder and you have something less than a million dollars in net worth, you probably need to be an active investor because that's going to be the thing that accelerates your net worth accumulation. Being a passive is going to get you something less than 10% a year. 
right? And so if you don't have a million dollars, let's call it half a million dollars, you know, 10% of that is 50 grand a year, right? But most people don't have a half a million dollars. So let's make it practical, right? When most people retire, they got $80,000 in savings, right? So you got your 80,000, let's say you forget the stock market, you put it all in real estate. That's $8,000 a year. That's not going to pay anybody's bills. And so what we need to do is take that 80 and put it into a deal. And then over the course of three to five years, double that 80. So now it's 160. Take that, invest it again, double it again. And now we're up to, what is that, 360? And oh, by the way, maybe you pull some of it out and do multiple deals at the same time, right? And that's how you compound to get to the million so that you can take the 10% and get the 100,000, right? But this concept of, you know, we're not accredited investors. Most of us aren't even sophisticated, even though we pretend to be and putting money in deals because, you know, that's the passive way we're trying. I think (laughs) we're rushing to the I quadrant, right? If you if you know anything about Robert Kiyosaki's cash flow diagram, right? You know, you got employee, self-employed, business owner, investor. Everybody wants to rush to bottom right investor. I, I need to be an investor. You need to be a business owner, right? Business owners are the places where you get the most return on investment outside of the investment in yourself, right? Business owners are able to grow and create equity. You have the leverage, you know how to pull them. And in that operation, you take that equity created and then you drop that down into the investor pool. But if you're an accumulator, if you're building, if you're growing, passively investing isn't going to do you a whole lot of good for creating income right now. Now, if you've got 30 years to wait, you know, you want to retire at 65 or 70 or whatever, then sure, do the eight to 10 percent. But if you're looking to get out in what most people promise is something less than 10 years, you got to be a business owner. There's no way around it. A lot of people want to be profitable multifamily operators, but lack the knowledge, deal flow, experience and capital to be successful. They often try to overcome these challenges out of order, slowing or eliminating their ability to get their next deal done. We've developed a framework that allows them to gain the knowledge they need to find profitable deals. When they do, they create the time and location for you, as well as the generational wealth they desire for their family. The Myers methods of multifamily investing have proved to be the fastest way to establish credibility and properly grow an apartment portfolio. If you want to know more about our four-step process, jump over to MyersMethods.com to get our free four-step guide to getting into multifamily investing. Let's get back to that. So I thought... I was, I'm not going to say the person's name, but I, I know they were recommended or someone that, you know, said, suggested to, you know, speak with them and learn more about how they're essentially putting together a fund. I guess they're, they they have started a, a fund and they have the money essentially sitting available to be, why are you laughing, to, available to be able to invest in real estate deals. And I, I, I mean, I was intrigued. So I was like, really? I was like, that's really cool. And so that's that's where the question came from. So, I mean, is there an aspect of it that, you know, can be used in that way that can be beneficial? You know what I mean? Sure. If you're the fund manager, right? Because you get to take the fee, right? You get to take the exit fee. You get to take all the other fees that you put into the PPM when you take the people's money. But that person is a business owner, right? So that's a good thing. It's active income, right? Okay. Right. But you know, your eight prep or your 10 or whatever you're going to get 
depending on how much, I mean, let's, let's just say, I have no idea what you would put in. Let's say you put 50,000 in. That's five a year. If you got 10%, what's that going to do? Good point. Good point. And so, I mean, how many years? Let's do it 10 years. Then you double your money over the course of 10 years. Is that impressive? I don't know. For most people, not, right? The fund manager part of it, I think, kind of is. Uh, it seems like it gives you more control to, the, to a degree, uh, more options. There's more options, but there's also pressure to deploy, right? So okay. that money sitting in the account needs to be at work so that you can generate profit so you can send it to the people who want their pref. If that money just sitting in the account, you know, at best, if it's a savings account, you know, you're getting 1% on the money. Well, you can't pay your eight for, you can't pay your eight pref if you're getting 1% by having it in a bank. So you've got to deploy it. Now, once you deploy it, what is actually the answer, right? Because most people aren't able to find deals that pencil right now. So I've got to send the capital out, but I don't know if I'm putting it in the right deal, but I do have to pay these people. And so that is the rub with doing a fund versus raising by the asset. And, you know, raising by the asset, it's like, oh man, well, the pressure is compressed, time frame, blah, 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 blah. But you don't have any pressure to deploy capital that um, you wouldn't under normal circumstances. That's a good point. I hadn't. Thought about it quite like that. I, I guess I've seen all the rose, the, the rosy color, you know, things about it. As you should. <laughs> you should see the roses, right? You should see the opportunity. But I like to consider myself a insurance policy. I want people to see the whole thing. I want you to see the risk. Mitigate the risk. And if you're okay with the risk, mitigate the risk and then enjoy the optimism. But I want people to see the whole situation because in marketing, we don't talk about the risk, right? Because we want you to put your money in the fund. Right. Exactly. No one wants to talk about that. That's not that's not cute, so to speak, but that's not sexy. I think it's the term I used to hear often. Another question. Are investors thought to be placing themselves in a higher risk situation when partnering with vertically integrated groups? So, you know, you have at least I'm hearing a lot or have heard a lot about various groups, you know, operators, whatnot, you know, we're vertically integrated and, you know, we have this, 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 and this cut costs, you know, whenever you're managing and this, that, and the other. What is your take on that? Um, one, I don't think anybody actually does it to cut costs because I don't know that you actually save any money by vertically integrating. And so vertically integrating means we got the property management company in-house, some people have their controller in-house and then you've got the ownership group on top of all of that. And potentially you have a contractor or construction company on the team as well. I Are you at more risk? I don't know. Right. It's it depends. And it, that's a really cheesy cop out answer. But here is the facts. of the No, case. but it, it does. I get it. You said it depends on the, the position. Well, it depends on. A, a lot of different things, right? Whether the property manager works on payroll W-2 for a company or they're 1099 as an independent contractor, I don't think that part changes all that much, right? But what does change is the sphere of influence or control. When somebody's on your payroll, you can say, we're going to do this, this, and this. And the person can decide not to do that and you terminate them. When somebody's 1099, you can say, we're going to do this, this, and this. And they'll say, okay, I'll get back to you when it's a priority for us to do that. Because, right, they're not your employee. They're a service provider. And, you know, there is some negotiation or posturing that happens when you come in and ask for things from a service provider. 
And so that piece right there is what people are chasing is the control piece. Now, the changing costs, the frustration that comes with terminating a person that's carrying out a function for you as an owner is probably a whole lot smoother when the person's W-2 because the rest of the systems are your systems, right? The software, the property managers that work for the person that's running the organization, all of that stuff is yours already. So you don't have to replace all of the infrastructure. You're replacing a body that's a part of a system that you've created. When it's 1099, it's like, oh man, well, now I got to get new reporting software. I got to get this. I got to get, I got to get all this stuff. And so that was the piece that people were struggling with. The other thing that I think there's probably some value is, you know, when people are doing property management for hire, 1099, third-party property management, that's a profit center for them. For the people who vertically integrate, many times their property management company is a loss, right? It doesn't generate a profit for them, but they're okay with that because it allows their property to show bigger returns. And so, you know, it, they just want to run their property management company at break even. They don't really care about whether or not it makes money. And so I guess the only other place that I really see risk, and I've never been asked this question, but the only other place that I see risk with third party or being vertically integrated would be the asset management team not really paying that much attention or as close attention to the property manager because it's in-house, right? And so it's just the assumption that, oh yeah, things are going to work out. It's fine. Don't worry about it. And then defending their employees versus taking a really hard look and saying, oh yeah, this person isn't actually doing what we've hired them to do. We've got to make a pivot and go to a new company. Uh, And that is coupled with usually that asset management person is a partner in the deal. And so if they own the property management company and you decide that you don't want to use them as a property manager anymore, then you have to look at the person that you fired every time you go to a meeting. And I'm in a situation like that right now. So that's why I was like, that's why this is a huge question because I've learned a lot about this in the past almost two years. And I'm like, wow, this is it's just, it was something serious, I think, for me. Yeah. So that part could be awkward. And I think everybody just assumes that everything's going to go well. Property management is extremely hard. It's low compensation. And because those two things happen, there's a lot of challenges in that space. I mean, it's operating the business and it's probably the most important piece after you close of your your team, right? If that doesn't work, then it can mess up pretty quickly. And depending on the size of the property, things can get off the rails and you may not be able to get it back on track. So I would say, you know, there are pros and cons to both sides. Just know what they are. And again, figure out how to mitigate the risk, right? If you're going to partner with your property manager or the asset manager who owns a property management company, then you need to upfront negotiate, hey, if we decide that we don't want you to manage the property anymore, does that mean that you want to be bought out the deal? What's going to be the turnover? Do we have a transition plan? Like We just want everything to be clear because we don't want you to feel like we have to use you because you're a partner in the deal. Or we don't want you to be a partner in the deal because we're used. Got it. That is a reassuring answer because I've really been thinking about this a lot lately. The opportunity that I'm in is not it's not doing that well. And uh, so they're just, you know, 
a myriad of things I just went over in my head and, you know, replayed and just basically, basically really being active and paying close, close attention to what is going on. What are the, the moves that are being made? Just I'm just I'm really considering like next time around, how will I navigate this situation? Appreciate that. Sure. Give me some more. You done? Is that it? <laughs> well, I was respectful of your time. You told me 30 minutes. So I was like, okay, well, I know Jerome got stuff to do. So I was like, I, I don't want to just be going on and on. But I mean, I have a few others that I'm kind of curious about. Come on, let's you- go. Go, go, go. Hurry up. Come on. Let's do it. So I have another question as it relates to we've talked, you've talked about how being a GP and then in the sense of you're a JB, you're essentially a GP. There's just all the JPs together or GPs together, I should say. I've heard or been offered also the KP option, becoming a KP on a deal. That, I guess, in essence, doesn't appear to really do much. What is your take on it? I mean, if you got net worth and liquidity, they want you on the loan. What are they going to do for you, though? Like what? Right. right? So are are you getting a piece of the fees? Are you getting additional equity? What is the reward for you serving in that role? And does it make sense for the risk? More than likely, you're signing a loan, right? That's the only reason that you have a KP. And so if you're signing the loan, do you know the operator well enough to co-sign for a car with them? Most people wouldn't co-sign for their little cousin. So I don't (laughs) co-sign for a stranger who they barely know. I, I don't know. Right. But Kind of the point is, you know, it's an opportunity for you to get compensated for the risk that you're taking and make sure that you equate that risk to make sure that to a dollar amount that you will be willing to trade, assuming that everything went wrong. And if you're not willing to do that, then don't sign, because while everything probably won't go wrong, if it does, you don't want to regret that you made that decision to sign. Because you thought you were going to get this. Like everybody back to the optimism piece, right? Everybody thinks, oh, yeah, everything's going to go great. And they're going to give me this thing. Oh, I don't really need all that. I'll just sign. No, not so much. But what I will say is once you've signed a loan, then you have experience, right? And that experience allows you to go get other loans. And so there is value there without question, inherent value for your long-term investing success. You know, putting money in as an LP does not constitute this experience. Signing a loan, making you a key principal, but I mean, I would want to be a general partner, right? I signed the loan, but I don't have a vote. That doesn't make sense. You get to attend the meetings though, right? To like, well, say for instance- again, again, it's all about how it's structured, right? But don't call me a KP, call me a general partner. And I want voting rights, right? If my name's on the loan and the bank is, you know, somewhere between 60 and 80% of the debt, right? If I'm on the loan and I don't have a voice, what am I really doing? So I, I need a vote, right? I, I got to have a voice because if not, then why would I give up my balance sheet, right. offer up my liquidity as a form of repayment if the property doesn't do what it's supposed to do? I mean, and literally you're saying if a disaster strikes, I'm going to be superwoman. I'm going to come in and I'm going to save the day with my money and my assets. I'm going to, I'm guaranteeing to the bank that this thing's going to work out fine. They won't lose any money. That's what you're saying when you sign. Big deal. So he's you deal. think. Uh, <laughs> okay. One other question. Yeah. So when you're, let's say, I know I've heard people that are in California and a lot of people don't necessarily think that's a market that they, 
they're they're they don't want to invest in that market even if they live there because most people will say landlord friend, friendly markets. How for? And then I've heard people say, okay, well, you don't want to go any more than I don't know three hour drive or whatever they decide on. What is the 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 thought there? Because when you're relatively new, maybe some of those places further out pencil more often than where you are. And I ask that because like, you know, I'm here in Houston and it's, it's, it's tough. Um, it's tough. <laughs> so, it, you know, I, I, I have kind of thought about, okay, maybe some other cities that are in Texas and just thought about, I just often wonder about the other states and, and, and things like that, that, you know, will require a long drive or a short flight. Yeah. So the three hour thing is, can I get it done in a day? Right. Is it a day trip? Can I drive to it and back in a day? That's why they say three hours. So three hours there, three hours back, an hour or two on property, lunch, bathroom breaks, et cetera. Right. So is that the rule for you? No. But and Texas is huge, by the way. Like you can drive six hours and still not be across Texas from what I hear. I've never done it, but it's crazy. So, you know, but that's the thought process. Can I get this thing done in a day? Because it becomes a headache if you're running back and forth and you can't get it done in the day. Because a lot of people prefer to sleep in their bed versus having to sleep in a hotel. If you're saying, hey, I can't, this doesn't work. I I can't get done what I need to get done in that radius. I want to go somewhere else. And I believe in the market. I believe in its fundamentals. Then your market's your market, right? But it's solely about convenience. And honestly, if the property is performing, you're not going to go to it, whether it's in your town. Or is, you know, 18 hours away. It's, you're not going to go because it's sending you money every month. And if you want pictures, you're probably going to call your property manager because you're not going to self-manage. So, yeah, it's again, it's just about convenience more than anything else. And people just throw things out there and state them as if they're laws. But that's what it's really been. Okay. Makes sense. I talked to a developer yesterday that is someone I, I know and they participate in the Houston market and he's in Seattle. <laughs> And he came down here for like a day yesterday. And I was like, wow, what? what? But he owns quite a few properties down here. The partners, some of his partners are here. But yeah, something like that. I was like, I just I don't know if I'd be too interested in that. But he's been in the game longer. So, you know, it is what well, it is. Well, I mean, but think about it, right? If the real estate in Seattle is super expensive, right? Two, you know, if you can fly, if there's a direct flight from Seattle to Houston, I'm sure there is, right? Then you're there. It's, I don't know, maybe three hours, if that, on the plane. He's in. He could fly in in the morning, be back out that night, and still sleep in his own bed. And so, is it is that any different than him getting in a car and driving three hours? For most people, it's not. Right? You got a little bit more time in the airport, right? Getting transit and so on. But is it that big of a deal? When I don't know how big his footprint is, but I mean, if the properties are doing a few million dollars a year, it probably makes sense. And I suspect he doesn't make that trip unless there's a problem or he's got some type of quarterly meeting or something that they just schedule for him to be able to say that he's been to the project. So yeah, again, there there's no magic to it. They just uh, throw numbers out and say, this is what it's going to take for me to just do one day without having to get a hotel. That's all. Saving money. Sounds like a plan. Sounds like a plan. Okay. That's enough for now. Wow. I got off the hot seat, ladies and gentlemen. She let me off early. I'm so grateful that she came to hang out with me. It's been fun watching your journey, being LinkedIn pals. And um, I just thank you so much for coming to ask such great questions because these are, again, some I haven't been able to answer so far. And so to the listeners, 
The pack is with you. We'll talk soon. You made it to this juncture, so you really love what we shared on this episode of Myers Methods Presents Multifamily Missteps. Do us a favor. Give us a five-star rating. Give us a review and share this with somebody who's interested in multifamily investing. Until the next time, the pack is with you.